Jeremiah 1, 4 through 14, chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, this is going to be the final sermon in our, um, in our series that we've been working through over the past few weeks that we've called Grace DNA. This is a series where we've been looking at passages that can help us discern what kind of church God might be calling us to be in this valley. And what we've seen is that we are going to be committed to our mission as a church, is that we're going to be committed to celebrating, receiving the gospel, and then extending that gospel, being a blessing to those around us. And and we see that we want to express that mission along three big avenues, loving God, loving one another, and loving our valley. So today we're going to consider another key way that God is asking us to love our neighbors up and down this stretch of highway that we happen to live on, on the western slope of Colorado. But before jumping into it, um, let me ask you how you would answer a question that I've been getting a lot lately. Okay, so my family and I moved here just over a year ago, about 14 months ago, and as I've caught up with my friends from around the country over this past year, the most common question I get is, wait, where do you live? Um, no one has heard of Basalt, Colorado, right? No one. And no one's heard of the Roaring Fork Valley, unless you have been here on vacation or something like that. And my guess is that for most of you who live here, you'd like to keep it that way, right? Like, let's just keep this low-key. We don't need anybody else moving here. That's fine, because as soon as the secret's out, um, the rush is on. But how do you answer that question? Where do you live? How should I answer that question? Where do you live? And the simple answer is, well, you've heard of Aspen, right? Uh, 20 miles down the road, small mountain town, known for fishing, um, and that kind of settles it. But that just scratches the surface, doesn't it, of this question. Where do you live? Um, When you peel back that sort of geographic answer, you get a whole other set of answers, social and economic. We live in a place that's driven by the resort economy of one of the world-class mountain towns, right? And that has all kinds of impact 
for people up and down this whole stretch of highway. It's, it's a blast to live here. That's the reason we all live here, right? We're all into the mountains and the skiing and the hiking and the running. It's fun, but it can also be hard. It can be financially difficult for families to make it here. It's an expensive place to live. There's long commutes. Um, it can be hard on families. A lot of young people here and uh, uh, an increasing number of others live on what's called the gig economy, right? We're just patching it together, trying to make it work, putting as many pieces together as we can to be able to stay here. And add to that that a lot of us moved from somewhere else, didn't we? We're transplants. And so we live here, but without an extended family around us. So we don't have that sort of generational connection, grandmas and cousins and crazy uncles. Um, peel back the onion even further, and under that sort of economic and social layer, answer this. Where do you live spiritually? Like, like what kind of place is this spiritually that you live in? I would characterize this valley as a very pluralistic and a very spiritually distracted place. Okay? And what I mean by pluralistic is we live in a valley of diverse beliefs. You will encounter all kinds of things that people believe here in this valley. Almost every conceivable religion, worldview, set of values, behaviors, you could probably find it all in our little valley here on the western slope of Colorado. Many people claim to be spiritual. Very few have an active religious association or commitment in their lives. For example, this church I've heard, or this valley I've heard is in the bottom 5% of church participation per capita in the country. Right? And yet, when I go uh, skiing and I'm meeting, chatting with people on the ski lift and they hear that I'm a pastor of a church, you know what the most common response I get from them is? They look up in the mountains and they say, this is my church. Right? See, this is a spiritual place, but it's not a religious one. And on top of that, I think it's a very spiritually distracting place. The, the culture of this valley promotes so much activity. Right between the work and the play and the family and, and the travel, that we are left far too little margin. We're far too busy. We're spread far too thin to let those quiet practices of prayer and reflection, the regular habits of, of Sabbath and worship, the consistent voice of God in, this word, in his word to shape us. We're shaped by the world so much easier than we're shaped by Jesus. And that's true of everybody, Christian, non-Christian alike. These are, I think, just the facts. It's kind of like saying the sky is blue. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the reality of where we live. Other places are different, but I don't necessarily think they're better or worse. In fact, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I moved here instead of the Bible Belt, and the reason I didn't move my family to Dallas, is because I personally prefer sort of the honesty and the, the mission opportunity that a pluralistic and a spiritually distracted place uh, provides. I mean, I love doing ministry in places like this. I loved it at Northwestern University, where I was before this. I love doing it here. I, I very much feel that a big part of my calling as a pastor is to prayerfully ask how I can help serve and lead a local church in a pluralistic place like this into a healthy, vibrant, welcoming gospel expression of God's love, right? Uh, To be a light for this world. That mission excites me. 
And that's actually my question for you this morning as well. How do we do that as a church? How do we build that kind of a community, that kind of a a witness? How do we live as a congregation, as the body of Christ, in this pluralistic place, at this distracting time, in a way that honors him and witnesses to him? Um, The passage that we're looking at this morning is a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah from God to his people during a time in Israel's history known as the exile. Now, the exile was a, is a 70-year period in Israel's history where God's people were overtaken by the Babylonians and exported to their main city, Babylon. They were removed from their homeland. They were separated from their families. They were dropped into the outskirts of the major city center and economic driver of the region. And there were people there from all other faiths, all other walks of life, uh, all kinds of value systems and beliefs were also relocated there. And they were asked to live out their days in a foreign land, yet remain faithful and obedient and even be a compelling witness to those around them. Okay, so in other words, those people are us. All right, we are those people. The New Testament actually even calls every Christian living in this world today a believer in a foreign land. If you follow Jesus, you're in exile by definition. This is not your eternal home. This is not where you were meant to live forever. You're here for a while, and while you're here in this foreign place, we have been called to faithfully follow God, trust his word, obey his commands, and to be a source of hope and life to those around us that don't believe. How do we follow Jesus in such a pluralistic place? That's our question for today. Where there's often strong pressure to conform to the values and the behaviors of those around us, and where we feel just as distracted and frayed as everybody else that we live around. Jeremiah's letter in chapter 29 addresses these exact questions. I think it serves as a guide for us, not only to live here, but to actually love our valley well. First, how, do, how not to live in a pluralistic place, and then we'll look at how to live in a pluralistic place. Pretty straightforward this morning. All right, how not to live in exile. Two ways we can go wrong. And the first one is what we could call the Babylonian option, all right? A little background here about the Babylonians. This is like the one-minute history lesson segment of the sermon, okay? So like ancient Near East history. Go, one minute, time me. When the Israelites were taken into captivity in Babylon for this 70-year period, it wasn't the first time that God had sent a foreign nation to capture his people and, and um, basically for, and punish them for their own unfaithfulness and, and hard-heartedness. About 125 years before this happened, the Assyrians were the reigning power of the day, and they invaded the northern tribes of Israel and totally decimated them. Now, the Assyrians were old school, okay? They were like pillage, plunder, destroy, don't leave a breathing soul. They were violent. They were brutal. It was like they were the worst, okay? A uh, hundred years later, by the time the Babylonians take over, they are still empire building, but they're a bit more progressive by this point, all right? So when they come to conquer the southern kingdoms of Judah, they still do their fair share of slaughtering, but instead of killing everyone, what they do is they actually set out to assimilate the Jewish people into their own culture. So they bring a whole load of them back with them to their capital, Babylon, and 
they um, pressure them to integrate into Babylon, Babylonian society and become like them. All right? They even took the brightest and the best Jewish young adults and put them to work for the government. That's the story of Daniel. And we're actually going to do that series next. We're going to look at the book of Daniel next because I want us to keep wrestling with this question, how is God calling us to live in this place at this time for his glory? And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. So that's what we'll do next. But the Babylonian option is the assimilation option, all right? They wanted the distinctiveness of God's people to disappear over time. They, they wanted them to, to pledge allegiance to a new king and a whole new kingdom, The Babylonians would be perfectly fine for the Jewish people to maintain their outward religious practices as long as they remained outward. The Babylonians wanted them to be so thoroughly indoctrinated into the culture and the practice of Babylon that they were believers in name only, but actually had hearts that loved Babylon and all the comforts and the riches that it had to offer. So the great temptation for God's people at that time and at that place living in a pluralistic society was to adopt so much of the culture and values and beliefs of that place that they wouldn't have to suffer any of the consequences for being different. They could be comfortably the same as everybody else. They could blend right in and ride out their time in a pluralistic place. Now, luckily, um, isn't it great that in our modern, scientific, progressive world, we have advanced so far beyond the ancient, you know, like religious practices of the Iron Age. I mean, isn't it great that we are so far advanced and so much more modern than the ancients that all their like crazy religious stuff isn't really more because we know how the world works. Wait a second. This is us. Dick Keyes wrote a book. Uh, he's a Christian author. He wrote a book called Chameleon Christianity, addressing this very same tendency in the world today. You know chameleons, right? Here's a picture of one. Can you spot them? That's crazy. Here's another one. The the chameleon superpower is that they can blend in wherever they are. If they don't want to, they don't have to stand out or be unique or distinctive in any way. They can just blend right in with the background of wherever they find themselves. For them, it's a defensive mechanism. I think for us, it can be a defensive mechanism as well, can it? How might we be tempted to just blend in with the culture around us so that we don't have to stand out so much as people who follow Jesus? What are the temptations personally or the temptations for us as a church to just be so integrated and ingrained in our wider culture that we can avoid the discomfort of some of the wild claims and the wild places that Jesus asks us to go? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we could blend in. Some of them are, you know, like maybe our spending habits, right? Are we adopting spending habits that reflect the generosity that God calls his people to have in the world? Or are we just reflecting the spending habits of the materialistic culture around us, right? I mean, maybe it's when you're out with friends who drink too much, you end up drinking too much because you blend right in. Maybe it's as simple as we just love people's approval more than God's approval most of the time. How are we blending in with the culture around us and losing the distinctiveness that Jesus calls us to live out? The Babylonians called this progressive and sophisticated. 
But God calls it an abandonment of our mission. Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew says, you're the salt of the earth. And if the salt lost its taste, how's it going to be salty again? How will that be restored? It's no longer good for anything. See, it's the distinctiveness, the difference of the followers of Jesus that God intends to bring taste and life and health and healing to the world. Don't throw it away. That's the first way not to live in a pluralistic place. The the Babylonian option, the Christian chameleon. Here's the next one. We might call this the false prophet option. In the passage we just read, in verses 8 and 9, we read this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets, and he means false prophets, and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now what he's referring to here is the previous chapter in Jeremiah in 28 when a guy named Hananiah was telling the Israelites this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. Um, The king of Judah and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. What's the promise of the false prophets here? It's a message of, of imminent victory, okay? It's a message that, look, within two years, this whole ordeal is going to be over. And the implication is that don't even worry about getting involved in the place where you find yourself, okay? It's, it's, you're not even going to be there long enough for it to matter. Don't enter into the relationships with these people. Don't get mixed up in all their problems and their lives, their schools and their businesses, their city. Stay separate. It'll be over soon. Hold out. Their world is going to hell in a handbag, and we're going to ride this thing out on our ticket to heaven, and it's all going to happen within two years. So just stay out of the fray. Don't engage. Stay separate. Hananiah is calling the Jewish people to remain outside the city. Yeah, they they might go into the city to, to do business or something, but it's always on their terms. It's always for their benefit their tribe, their money, their power, and not for the good of the city where they've been sent. The false prophet option is the option of retreat. Now, we could live in a pluralistic place simply by staying as unstained by it as possible. Circle the wagons, keep out the the darkness and the sin of the world, ride it out to the end. The opposite of the Christian chameleon is the Christian musk ox. Okay, now I'm not familiar with this, with this animal, but Dick Keyes, this author I told you about, pointed me in the right direction. This is the musk ox. And the musk ox is an ox that only lives in the polar regions in the far north. All right, And so for survival, what it does is it creates these huddles and they, they get their horns and they point them out towards the, the difficult, um, dangerous world. They put all their young inside the little huddle there and they just hold together for safety and they ride it out until the danger is over. Okay? A church can be guilty of this. Only interested in building our own tribe. Only interested in growing our own numbers. Not too concerned about the people who never make it through the doors of our building not getting involved in the wider community or its problems in deep ways, not interested in rolling back our sleeves and investing in difficult issues in the community because we're only here for a little while anyway, right? Why get so messy? Why even engage? 
How are you tempted to retreat from the messiness and the sinfulness of this world around you? How are we tempted to do that as a church? How are we right now doing that as a church? These are the uncomfortable questions that this letter is asking us to consider. And I think each person and each congregation is going to have tendencies to lean one way or another. We're going to be too easily blend in, or we're going to too easily opt out of the place where we find ourselves um, during our exile here on earth. And while they're different on the surface, the chameleon and the muskox, I actually think the heart of both is the same. Dick Keyes, who I've mentioned a couple times here, writes in his book, Chameleon Christianity, both the compromising of the chameleon and the tribalizing of the muskox limit the painful experience of being aliens and exiles in the world. Both remove the interface of relationships that could produce friction between Christian and non-Christian, and both derive primary security not from God, but from human social comfort. In other words, what he's saying is both are driven by fear. We're afraid of discomfort. We're afraid of the awkwardness of being distinctive and unique. We're afraid of um, taking on other people's problems that don't have to be our own problems, being stained by other people's issues. So we blend in or we retreat. Two opposite reactions to the same fear of, of living in the kind of place that we live in. But the Bible offers a totally unique approach. Okay? Listen again to verse 5 through 7 of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. This is God's letter to you. This is God's letter to Grace Church of the Roaring Fork Valley. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. To follow Jesus in this world is neither to blend in or to bow out, but it's to live a fearless, generous, transformative life for the good of the valley that we find ourselves in. No good animal analogy here, by the way. I'm sorry. I'd be making something up and it'd be totally distracting. So um, I don't have that for you. But, But listen to how God wants our church to live in our place that we find ourselves. He says, build and plant and multiply. What he's saying is, have a plan for long-term involvement in the place where you are. Unlike Hananiah, the false prophet, Jeremiah says they're going to be in exile the whole time. Okay, that full 70 years that God ordained, plan on it. You'll be there the whole time. And so while you're there, don't just look out for your own, but look out for all of those who you find yourself interacting with and seek to work for the good of this place. Invest in the place where you are. And verse 7 is probably the central verse in this, in this chapter. Seek the welfare of the city. We could say seek the welfare of our valley where I have sent you into exile. This is sometimes translated seek the peace and the prosperity of the valley because that word for welfare, it's the word for peace in the Bible. It's the word shalom. And shalom in the Bible is a fascinating word. It it means way more than just peace, like the absence of conflict. It means way more than peace and quiet. What it means is a holistic health and a holistic well-being. Shalom is the way that God designed the world to work when everything is working right. 
Shalom in the Bible is relationships of generosity and encouragement, not manipulation and gossip. Shalom is no loneliness, no suicide, no hopelessness, no addiction. Shalom is a world where every child is safe all the time, always loved, never abused. It's, it's where marriages and families and homes are places of hope and never fear. Shalom is where our schools and our institutions are, are places of care and growth for our kids, where we're investing not only in their growth intellectually, but emotionally and spiritually in their character. Shalom is local, state, federal governments that work for the justice and the freedom and the equity of everyone. They protect their citizens. They promote policies of dignity, of life for every human being, life from from the unborn baby in the womb to the refugees fleeing violence in war-torn countries. Shalom is a world where there are no war-torn countries, right? Where there's no hate, where there's no brokenness of any kind. Biblical peace is the world working the right way, unstained by sin and corruption and evil and sadness. And here's what's fascinating. God says that is what you should be working for exactly when you are away from home, right? Exactly when you're not home and you're not where you're supposed to be, work for the peace of this place, even though you're not going to be there forever. But while you're here, make it better for everybody else around you. Whether or not you look like them, vote like them, live in the same neighborhood or not, um, work for the peace of your valley. What does this look like for us at Grace Church? Well, a lot of things, and I don't think we can answer that question fully at all, ever. I mean, we have no idea what God has in store for us in this valley. But let me just put it like this. What we are going to do here as a church is invest our ministry and our money to make this valley a more shalomful place for all the people who live here, whether or not they ever come through the doors of our building. And so we're going to invest our our ministry and our money in helping young families thrive here by being their extended family when they have no extended family, right? And we're going to invest our ministry and our money in the kids and the children in this valley, whether they're our children or not. So we're going to partner with organizations like CASA, who put a specific court-appointed legal advocate in the courtroom with the child while their parents are going through domestic cases so that there's one person in the room who certainly has that child in their view all the time. And we're going to partner with groups like Angel Tree, a nonprofit that we just helped start here in Basalt this last year that provides Christmas presents for children in our neighborhood who wouldn't otherwise get them. We're going to invest in the shalom of our place. We're going to, um, uh, we're going to invest in our, um, or sorry, we're going to invest our ministry and our money in those who are hungry in our valley by partnering with Food Bank of the Rockies to host their mobile food pantry on our property. And we're going to continue to partner with Extended Table down in Glenwood. We're going to invest in our Latino, Latina brothers and sisters by providing an affordable, consistent place where they can come and have a worship service here in our building. And we're going to pray that the relationships that begin there in common mission and common ministry are going to help to bring healing to some of the racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic divides that I think define our valley probably more than we want to admit. These things are not just extras that we're going to do when we get around to it. This is central to the mission of our church because we've been called by God, sent here by God 
to bring peace to this valley. Build there, invest there, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And finally, maybe the most countercultural and transformative thing that we can do in this little corner of the world that God has placed us is to pray. God says, pray for your place on its behalf. Pray to God on behalf of the valley where you find yourself. Pray for wisdom and care and stewardship of our leaders in our community. Pray for friendships. Pray for safety as people are out there in the mountains doing all the crazy stuff that they do all the time. We're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for other churches to be faithful witnesses and vibrant places of community and hope. I think so much of this just boils down to one question. At the end of the day, do we come here to this church to get something or to give something, right? To be a blessing or to just come and receive what we think we need to be filled up for the rest of our week. And giving is risky. If you are primarily a giver and not a receiver, if if you're primarily thinking of others and how we can love and care for them instead of and before ourselves, who's primarily thinking of you? This is a risky place to be. Giving is risky. And that's why to walk this path of love while we're in exile, we need to know deep in our bones that we are safe and loved by the one who walked the path of exile long before he asked us to. See, Jesus was exiled from his home in heaven, not because he did anything wrong. This was no punishment. This was no hard-heartedness on his part. This was the perfect king of the universe being exiled from his own home and sent to live in this place of darkness and sin. And then when he lived here, he was abandoned by all his friends, and then he was exiled from Jerusalem out onto a hill where he was killed, and there he experienced the isolation and the true homelessness that we only feel in part while we live out our days here. You see, he was exiled so that you and I would never have to be exiled truly, ultimately. We live as exiles now for a short time. We spend this season away from home, but we know with certainty we have a home and we will return to it. Let's, let's finish by looking at these closing verses. 10 through 14. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This is a famous verse. Plans for welfare, for shalom, for peace, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord, I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You have an eternal home secured for you forever, guaranteed by the promise and the word of God himself. And because of that fact, we can, while we're here, have the freedom to extend ourselves, risk being givers for the place where we have been placed. Our posture towards this valley cannot be simply to blend in and live out our days here as similar to everyone else as we can. The the gift of the gospel, the calling of the Christian life, it's too beautiful, it's too grand to lose that distinctiveness and that uniqueness. And our posture towards our neighbors here cannot be one of separation and indifference because the gift of the gospel is too grand, right? The, The call of the Christian life is too beautiful to be hoarded and kept to ourselves. God's calling this church to be a source of peace for the whole valley.
distinct, yet highly engaged, different, yet extremely generous. We want to be a church that is a gift to as many different kinds of people as we can, whether they ever walk through the doors of our church. We want to build, we want to plant, we want to multiply, seek the peace and prosperity of our valley, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And by God's grace, may we be able to participate in God's kingdom moving forward and expanding in this place. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this letter that you sent from heaven to our church this morning. Thank you for the call to be a source of shalom for the the place where you have put us. And I pray that we look to you in faith and hope and trust, that we rely on all the incredible promises of your gospel to give us the courage to do that, to engage and remain distinct, to to be unique and and yet generous to all those we meet. God, help us Help us bring peace to this valley. We don't know what that looks like yet, but guide us and lead us. Amen.